Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Joining this pathological life now, we have Australian of the Year, Dr. James Mukey. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning and thank you. Now, let's just start with an overarching question, if you don't mind. When we think about diabetes, and that's a bit of a catch-all phrase, what do you think is the best approach for Australia tackling this issue uh, in relation to perhaps different guidelines or testing? What would be your uh, suggestion if you had the power to make some changes? Yes, absolutely. So this is a quite a big question and I'll try and answer it as concisely as I can. So if we're looking at diabetes, I'm really going to be talking about type 2 diabetes, which makes up close to 90% of cases worldwide, uh, even in Australia. And this is a largely preventable dietary disease related to the consumption of too much sugar in our diet. So if we're going to call it a dietary disease, well, then it should be a dietary cure, right? But there are a number of factors that make this a difficult thing to achieve. And earlier in the year, before I received the award, I wasn't expecting to receive the award, but I I came up with this concept called the five A's of sugar toxicity. Uh, Firstly, First A is addiction. Sugar is highly addictive. It's as, as addictive as nicotine. Second A is alleviation. We often use sugar to alleviate stress or make us feel better when we're down. Third A is accessibility. Sugar is cheap and everywhere in our lives. Fifth A is addition. Something like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. And the, the fifth A is advertising. Our world is flooded with ads and TV commercials for sugary products. So if we look at it in those terms, then the strategy really has to deal with all of these A's. And there's three overarching uh, uh, concepts uh, uh, which sit above the five A's, which also start with the letter A, so awareness, accountability, and action. So for awareness, uh, it's about being personally aware that sugar is highly addictive and that we use it to alleviate stress. Me as a doctor, I didn't even realize that was a situation until earlier this year. So how does uh, a common person uh, in the community have any idea about this? Uh, and also it's down to awareness more broadly amongst the public of the dangers of excessive sugar intake, uh, the devastating life-changing and life-threatening complications of type 2 diabetes, but also the reversibility of this disease, uh, something very critical which uh, many doctors are not even aware of. So the other uh, thing is accountability, so accountability of businesses and industry to do the right thing by the people of Australia rather than this predatory tactics that they engage. And finally, action, and that's action in particular by our government. I think we have a huge opportunity here to, to lead the world uh, into having a, um, a broad public awareness campaign uh, for holding businesses and industry accountable to their predatory tactics. And then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the dietary guidelines, which are outdated, they're flawed, and they're conflicted by industry. So we really need to address all of these things. It's a systemic problem, and a systemic problem needs a systemic change that's uh, not just one single uh, one single strategy. So if we then look at uh, the five A's of sugar toxicity, um, and, and particularly the three A's of, of uh, addition, 
uh, accessibility and advertising. This is where our government and industries and business need to be accountable. So, for example, I can give you lots of uh, examples here, but uh, in terms of accessibility, you know, you can't check out from most supermarkets and stores without being confronted by half-priced chocolates and, and soft drinks. Uh, so removing those sorts of products uh, from checkout counters where they're preying on our children and uh, on the vulnerable, I think it's a, is certainly something that can be done. In terms of advertising, removing ads for sugary products uh, from TV when our kids are watching, also uh, removing banning ads aimed at kids on the uh, on the internet, on social media. And uh, finally, with the addition element, you know, we don't have any indication at this point in time how much added sugar is is contained within our food. So a clear uh, front of pack labeling system is really called for. We have a Hellstar rating system, which is deeply flawed because it's voluntary. And it's also flawed because the algorithm, which has been created by industry, actually gives a healthy rating to some unhealthy products, such as orange juice, which has um, uh, five stars, but has almost as much sugar as a, as a glass of cola, for example. So that's just a number of strategies uh, that one could explore to try and uh, reduce the impact of sugar in our world. It is staggering. I love those five A's of sugar toxicity. I mean, love in inverted commas, of course, um, because I've been I've been trying to. Well, I have been successfully following a slack keto style diet, and as I was trying to work out what had sugar in it, it is staggering just how much it's everywhere. And as I was reflecting before our chat about the episodes we've done on this podcast, we did one on uh, mesothelioma, and uh, I was quite taken by how the asbestos industry uh, just pushed the stuff, even when they knew it was bad for us. Do you think sugar will end up being the new asbestos? There's no doubt about it. Uh, sugar uh, is a toxin, and it's the only toxin addictive product that we actually give children and our infants, oh. even babies. You know, so this it is a toxin. There's no doubt about it. And and uh, one thinks of type two diabetes being related to uh, people who are overweight and obese, but this is not the case. In the United States, there are more metabolic, there are more thin metabolically unhealthy people than there are obese metabolically unhealthy people. So it's not the obesity per se. It's not even the amount of calories. It's actually the type of calories, and in particular, it's the sugar. And the really toxic component of sugar is is fructose, which uh, is absorbed 100% by the liver and and uh, 30% roughly is converted directly to fat. So this is a big driver. Also, uh, the refined carbohydrates in our diet, foods made from white flour, white rice, uh, white potatoes, these are pretty much sugar in disguise. Uh, and so this is something that people are not, often not aware of, of the glucose that they're taking in when they eat refined carbohydrates. In your, with your platform as Australian of the Year, your concept of a sugar tax has been talked about. What have you heard back? What sort of feedback are you getting? And are you hopeful of that progressing to a point of uh, becoming LAW law at any point? So uh, there's certainly some solid evidence and good reasoning behind uh, a tax or, let's say, a levy for a, a, want for a, a more euphemistic word. And when I uh, received the award earlier in the year, I talked about my overarching strategy, which was uh, the five A's of sugar, related to the five A's of sugar toxicity. But of course, being in Canberra, the political journos all uh, loved the, the, the uh, talk of a tax. And so it all became about Dr. Mickey calling for a sugar tax. But as you can see, there's a, it's much more broad strategy which is necessary here. But as I say, there's some solid evidence and good reasoning behind a, a tax. And I think if we look at a 
attacks on sugary drinks, what I call sugar-loaded beverages, because they are the big driver of all of this. And, and certainly when we look at fast foods, sugar-loaded beverages are, are the driver of their effect on obesity, not the burgers or the fries. Uh, in Australia, in the 10 years leading to 2017, we had a 30% increase in the consumption of sugar-loaded beverages. Uh, numerous studies have shown that they're linked to obesity and type 2 diabetes. And there's now something like 17 studies from multiple countries that have shown that a levy on sugar-loaded beverages reduces their purchase and their consumption. So, as I say, it makes sense to me. Now, it's been modelled in Australia, a 20% tax on, on sugary drinks would save $2 billion in healthcare costs, and that's over and above the dental bill. So, uh, it would be quite staggering. And just that 20% tax would raise over $600 million, which could then be used to fund health awareness initiatives and to reduce health inequalities that exist in our society, particularly in lower socio socioeconomic areas, also in, in remote Aboriginal communities. Um, now, interestingly, a, a recent national survey has shown that something like 77% of Australians are supportive if the money is used in this way. And, uh, you know, there's been a bit of kickback and, and there always will be kickback. In fact, in the week after I, I was uh, received the award, uh, our health ministers came out saying that there's no way going to be a tax on, on sugary drinks. And I got an invitation to meet with the CEO of the, uh, the non-alcoholic beverages, uh, uh, association to talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 the people come out to play as soon as they hear that. But what's interesting is that Multiple studies from Mexico and the US have shown no job losses in, in the industry. It'll have minimal impact on sugarcane farmers because this is the concern because sugarcane areas are in marginal seats and this is why the government, both parties are, both major parties are concerned. But 80% of our sugar is exported. So only a small amount goes to, to sugar loaded beverages. And so an expected 1% drop in demand would ultimately be traded elsewhere. Another of the myths that's often thrown up when this is discussed is that this is a tax on the poor. Yes, uh, there will be an additional cost of the poorest households, but it only amounts to about $35 every year, which is only $4 more than to the wealthiest households. And that really, to me, is just a small price to pay when it's compared to the enormous cost saving in the treatment of type 2 diabetes and, and tooth decay, which is also a big problem, mm -hmm. and also the lost productivity due to illness. And actually, the costs to the individual of diabetes is astronomical. It costs about four to $5,000 every year uh, when there's no complications, up to 10000 when there is uh, complications. And so um, it, it definitely, as I say, it makes sense to me, but it is a really difficult thing to achieve because you have these powerful industry lobby groups. Uh, we have votes in marginal seats, particularly in, in uh, northern Queensland, uh, you know, with potential impact on jobs and revenue. And that's certainly uh, the argument that's put forward. But there's certainly a very strong counter argument to this. Mm. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, prevention is a long-term strategy and the, and the return on investment actually spans beyond the lifetime of a political party. And, and this is why uh, it's really difficult to get the government to support such an, such an initiative. But if, at least if we can start with some of the other initiatives that I mentioned, then ultimately I think this is uh, – going to be something that happens in Australia. It certainly happened in the UK. And what's happened, rather than um, 
there's been actually a 30% drop across the board in the amount of sugar that's added to drink. So, so what they've done, the sugar, sugar businesses have actually uh, dropped the amount of sugar in the sugary beverages so that they come just below the threshold so they don't have to pay a tax. So uh, the industry adapts very quickly. Even achieving that uh, drop, is that still a net positive versus the eradication of the, the sugar altogether? I think anything is positive to reduce our consumption yeah. of sugar. At the moment, the government has a... Um, a, a plan in place with the with the uh, sugar sugary drinks industry uh, to reduce the amount of sugar in sugary drinks by twenty percent by twenty twenty five. At the moment, it is not on track. Only seven sorry, only seven percent drop has been achieved, and it's been achieved uh, by simply broadening the portfolio of drinks rather than reducing the amount of sugar wow. in in the most heavily consumed most popular product. So it's really just a smokescreen for action, I believe. In my day job, I do marketing and I can foresee the big soft drink manufacturers going, well, okay, let's switch people to our no sugar alternatives. And if I'm not wrong, I believe there's research being undertaken in South Australia into how the body reacts to the no sugar uh, drinks. And there is a similar sort of reaction as if there were sugar. Have you got any thoughts or insights on that? Yeah, sure. So they're non-nutritive sweeteners, they're called, and the drinks are artificially sweetened beverages. Now, non-nutritive sweeteners have been linked to a number of chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes, stroke, heart disease. Uh, they're not effective in weight loss, and they maintain our addiction, one of those five A's of sugar toxicity. So I'm not a fan whatsoever. Let's say if someone has type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes and they're trying to transit away from sugar-loaded beverages to water, then then artificially sweetened beverages would be on that path. But I think ultimately it's best to get off these things so that you don't have that maintained addictive status. One last thing before we move on. Um, the mindfulness in our approach to eating, we seem to have lost it as a society. We gobble things quickly. To me, this opens the door to shoveling some of that, that sugar in. Do you think there is a, a lifestyle and cultural aspect that would help uh, embolden us to be more thoughtful about what we're shoving down our gullet? Well, I think the addiction factor and the huge accessibility factor makes, as I said, makes this really difficult to achieve uh, for, for most people because, as you were saying before, most people are not aware of how much uh, sugar is added to our food and drinks as well. So this is where the awareness uh, really needs to be uh, brought in. But I think one of the other problems here, uh, and uh, we didn't talk about the guidelines, but for the, the last you know, 40 so years, uh, the guidelines have demonized natural saturated fats in our diet. Uh, so what's happened as a result uh, is that our consumption of natural saturated fats has dropped and as to replace, so fats in our diet actually add flavor and they add satiety. So when you don't have the satiating effect of natural fats, uh, they have to be replaced by sugar and carbs, which are non-satiating. And so what happens, rather than being replete between meals, people are actually uh, get hungry very quickly. And so that's when snacking tends to happen. And when the snacking is driven by also withdraw, uh, withdrawals from, from uh, uh, 
as you start to come off your sugar, you start to get withdrawal symptoms, which are really powerful. I've actually experienced that a number of times myself. So all of these things uh, certainly make it very, very difficult uh, for us. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think as long as people are aware, then then strategies can be put in place to, to deal with that. Oh, the cards are so stacked against uh, us consumers th- through the power of so much messaging and so much money. That's right. And I just wanted to mention on that note with the, with the natural saturated fats, there's never been any evidence to link the natural saturated fats to cardiovascular disease, to heart heart attack and stroke. And so this is critical information that the Australian public needs to be aware of. And this is uh, products such as full fat dairy, eggs, uh, unprocessed meat, and even dark chocolate. So really important information that that people need to be aware of so that they can start to uh, change their dietary habits away from this dependence on carbohydrates, which are non-essential and and often poor in quality, the refined carbohydrates, as I mentioned before, and and start to uh, reintroduce natural saturated fats so that they are satisfied between meals and, and not always looking for something to eat, which is often uh, high in sugar content. Dr. James Mukey, thank you for joining our podcast. Great to be here this morning. Thank you so much. Diabetes is a topic that many of us in Australia are a little bit nervous about talking about because we hear horror stories about it and yet we still plug away and we eat all the naughty stuff that we shouldn't be eating. Uh, Travis, this is going to be a fascinating and gruelling uh, investigation. It, it is. It's it's one that uh, a number of doctors will actually know because it's one of those topics that the history is fascinating it starts in the the magic number is uh, 1552 BCE. Uh, it was an Egyptian phys- physician by the name of uh, Hesi Ra, who was a doctor and a dentist, which I didn't realise <laughs> you could mix, but uh, you could back then. Uh, and he he wrote about an illness that these patients had. Uh, they had this rapid weight loss um, and frequent urination. And around the same time, the ancient healers noted that these patients had uh, ants were attracted to their to the urine of these patients. Of course, this is an odd time; they didn't understand it. We then take ourselves to uh, you know the first century AD, and we, we've got Arataeus, who's a Greek physician, and uh, he described it in his writings: melting down of flesh and limbs into urine. And he noted that patients had an intense thirst. So he is actually the person that termed this diabetes. It was interpreted as siphon, uh, meaning to flow through. So there was no cure. So they're seeing this as somehow it is the body turning into urine and passing out. Uh, And he mentioned about these patients who had diabetes. Life is short disgusting and painful. So that takes us to the Middle Ages. The The people in the Middle Ages term this disease as pissing evil. Wow. Uh, so it's sort of, uh, there's no real way to, to soften that uh, way. But. That would be a great name for a punk band, by the way. <laughs> there might be now, you never know if we start one. Yeah. That's how they saw it. Again, this frequent urination comes up it's a, it, as a common theme um, and it's a symptom in diabetes. We get to the 11th century 
And this is when it starts to be diagnosed. But the way it gets diagnosed is, again, through what they call these people who were water tasters. And water tasters were people who tasted the urine to see if it tasted sweet. And that is where we get the term, the Latin term, malitis from, because it means honey, sweet urine. Wow. So... I'm so glad my career advisor didn't put water taster on the list. Well, it's it's different, isn't it? So, and what they realised is that exercise helped, except for they put it the other way. They thought horse riding was really good for to, to stop the frequent urination and to relieve excess urination. But it wasn't until the 1870s uh, in the Franco-Prussian War, that a, a French physician by the name of Apollinaire uh, Bucati, he noted that during this time that patients who were diabetic were on war rations. And because they were all eating less, glucose disappeared from their urine. The advice that he then gave was eat as little as possible. So a whole bunch of fad diets came out that was called the oat cure, milk diet, rice cure, or potato therapy, and to try and to manage this through diet. It was around this time, or just before this time, in 1869, that we have a, a medical student by the name of Paul Langerhans, who was working in Berlin in the Verkau lab, uh, who was investigating the pancreas. And he found when he was looking down the microscope, there was two sets of systems in the pancreas. One was a whole bunch of ducts, what we call asini, was responsible in the digestive area. The other was a set of cells he didn't know what they were. They didn't have a name and he didn't know their function, but he noted them down that they existed. 25 years later, a French histopathologist by the name of Eduardo Langnessy also noted these cells. And he proposed that they were responsible for internal secretions. So the, the pancreas is digestive, but he said these cells, I think they have another function. He called them islets de Langerhans, which we called these days islets of Langerhans cells. It's probably a good time just to look at the pancreas about what we know now. And it's an organ that sits underneath the, the stomach. It, it attaches to the duodenum. It, it sits in behind there. It's about 15 to 20 centimetres in size in, a, in an adult and weighs about 85 to 120 grams. Now, it has two functions. So they were theorising, and it was right, what we call exocrine and endocrine. Endocrine means it goes into the blood and it sends messages. Exocrine goes out into the digestive system and it helps digest the food. 85% of the masses of pancreas is dedicated to digestion. So all those asinine, all those ducts, secrete their juices that help us digest. 2% is the endocrine function. And they're the cells, the islets of Langerhans cells. And that's regulating glucose, blood sugar. Whether it's too high or too low, those cells kick in. That's the cells that they were looking at and examining. But they didn't know that's what they did. They just noticed them, first of all. An important date is 1889, when German physiologist Oskar Minkowski and a physician, Joseph von Mehring, were investigating the effect of pancreatic secretions on fat metabolism. Unfortunately, in these days, the, what they would do is experiment on dogs. So what they did 
is they would remove the pancreas of a dog and find out what it did to digestion. They found that the dog developed identical symptoms to diabetes. Unfortunately, died soon after as well. And then the link was suddenly made between the pancreas and diabetes. So they started conducting trials on dog, diabetic dogs, with pancreas extracts. And eventually, they found that the extracts would help the dog with digestion, but not with endocrine function. So the blood sugar didn't help, but it could help digestion. In 1901, a pathologist in John Hopkins in the US, Eugene Opie, started thinking that the islets, the islets of Langerhans were responsible for the onset of diabetes. It wasn't until 1920s when Frederick Banting was a Canadian medical officer who had returned from the war because of shrapnel in his arm and trained as a surgeon was, was developing a lecture on pancreatic function and came across an article that said the relation of the islets of Langerhans to diabetes. And he theorized that the pancreatic digestive juices, so the exocrine function, was harmful to the secretions. So the two separate systems, one if they mixed, would affect the other one. So we're doing all these extracts and injecting it or trying to put it in, but one would be harmful to the other. That was his thought. So via a friend, he met John McLeod, who was a Scottish physiologist, and they developed an experiment. With the help of a medical student by the name of Charles Best, they got a dog and they restricted the pancreas in such a way that the ducks and the asini would atrophy, effectively die. But you would leave behind the cells that weren't affected. So the islets of Langerhans cell. The problem was keeping a dog alive when you're restricting it like that was very difficult and took a long time. And a lot of dogs. And, yeah. and eventually they were able to get to the point where they were able to get a diabetic dog with extracts from a pancreas and inject it into the dog and pull their blood the dog's blood sugar down. So they did find that the islets of Langerhans had this extract that they were able to use that was to bring down blood sugar levels. And so by the end of 1921, they tried to purify this extract. And they invited, invited the person by the name of James Collop to help do this. And in 1922, on the 11th of January, there was a 14-year-old boy by the name of Leonard Thompson who came into hospital with end-stage diabetes. He weighed 65 pounds, or 30 kilograms, and at that time, the only treatment was a starvation diet. He was going in and out of a coma, and the father was desperate, as you can imagine, and he agreed to trial this drug, and the results were miraculous. He was saved. Drug proved to work. Later, they were able to mass-produce it, and it revolutionized diabetes treatment, because they were producing insulin. What a story. In later on, which wasn't far away, uh, Frederick Banting and John McLeod received the Nobel Prize. The other two, who was uh, James Collip and, and Mark, Charles Best, didn't, but they ended up sharing the, the money with them anyway. The young boy who came in, who was the, the experiment for insulin, he lived another 13 years on insulin, ended up dying at the age of 27, 27 with pneumonia, 
but it's a remarkable story. He was the, the he was the poster boy of uh, of insulin and, and diabetes. Gee, all right. So let's come back and continue this story in just a moment. I just note for the record, you said there was that period of a lot of fad diets, which has prompted a question. When Dr. Davika Thomas joins us later, I want to confess to her that maybe I'm pursuing one of those things. Sounds good. We've picked up the history of diabetes now. Uh, Before Dr. Davika Thomas joins us in the last part of this episode, let's just take a snapshot of where we're at as far as the prevalence of diabetes in our society. Diabetes mellitus is, is a group of disorders lumped together. Effectively, it just results in, in high blood sugar levels, so hyperglycemia. So when we look at the, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, they've reported that approximately 5% of Australian population, self-reported, have diabetes. Now, when you go to Diabetes Australia, they estimate that approximately 1.7 million people have diabetes and so that's 1.2 million people of known who are known to have diabetes and we have approximately 500,000 who are undiagnosed. So that adds up to that 1.7 million which is basically the population of South Australia. Yeah yeah and I I, when I was going through medical school it used to be uh, that for every person diagnosed with diabetes there is a person undiagnosed. So it now seems to be that was a one in two. Now it seems to be almost a one in three. So I guess that's an improvement, but still a lot of improvement to go. When we look at that, we have 100,000 people develop diabetes uh, in the past year. That's about 280 people per day or one person every five minutes. Not only that, Diabetes Australia points out that for every person diagnosed, there is usually a carer or someone that takes care of them. So you double that number pretty much, you know, 1.2 to you know, 2.4 million of people who are dealing with it or having to look after someone or dealing with themselves. The estimated cost of this is about $4.6 billion Australian. We have uh, for every death about one in 10 uh, either has diabetes as a, an underlying cause or an associated cause of death. Uh, 11% of hospitalizations are related to uh, or associated with diabetes. That is a staggering number. It, it is, uh, you know, one in 10 again. Uh, and then it unfortunately gets worse when you go into regional and rural areas where they have two times the level of hospitalizations and death uh, for diabetes. That even gets worse when you start looking at um, Indigenous Australian and Aboriginals who have a four times as likely to develop diabetes, um, much more increased hospitalisation and, and death. They actually have the, the fastest growing cause of vision loss in their communities uh, is diabetes. And there was even a, an article one time comparing uh, just worldwide different races with the amount of uh, nephrons in a kidney, which is the, the functional unit of the kidney. And for uh, Indigenous Australians, Aboriginals, they, of all races, have the least amount of nephrons, meaning that if you have a disease that affects kidneys, they are going to have less reserve on their kidneys and develop kidney disease faster than other races. So it's just there's a double hit there. Uh, and also in the general population, it's, you know, diabetes is the leading cause of preventable blindness. Uh, you know, 25 to 35% uh, patients report some diabetic 
retinopathy, so inflammation or pathology with the eyes. Um, and 15% of the patients have what we call diabetic uh, macular edema, so swelling in the back of the eyes. There's 4,400 amputations uh, per year. Uh, 1,700 of these patients die because of you know, ulcers and complications uh, with lim- limbs. Heart disease. Now, heart disease in the general community is the it's the highest cause of death, but it's even worse in diabetics. So they'll develop disease about ten or fifteen years earlier uh, than non-diabetic counterparts. Uh, they have two to four times the increased risk of heart disease, um, and it is again the number one cause of people's death. As two thirds of patients with diabetes die with with heart disease. We look at kidney disease. There's 360,000 of patients with diabetes have kidney disease. It's 3,500 on dialysis. And the problem is, uh, the most concerning part, is that diabetes is the fastest growing chronic disease in Australia. And that's of all types. So type 1, type 2, gestational diabetes, all the figures are increasing. So when we're looking at this, it's a matter of how do we classify this as a pathology and the easiest way to think about it is this is what we call a a vascular disease Uh, so we've got micro so small vessels and macro large vessels so when we look at uh, let's look at microvascular first so the small vessels the vessels of the eye the kidney and your long nerves your peripheral nerves are very affected because of high blood sugar levels And because of diabetes, it accelerates atherosclerosis. So it means the fatty plaques in hearts and uh, coronary arteries and blood vessels is accelerated. They grow quicker. So if you grow quicker, then you're going to have issues with all the vessels that are small and large. When you go to the macrovascular, people have increased risk of stroke, increased risk of heart disease, so coronary arteries, and then increased risk because peripheral nerves are affected, of getting an ulcer or because they can't feel it and then going amputation and, you know, limbs. So it's such an extensive disease altering blood sugar levels, but the complications are huge, which is why the costs associated with managing this uh, is so widespread. So if we look at type 1 diabetes, uh, it's an autoimmune disease. So we get some sort of sensitization, uh, either an infection or environment, uh, and then something causes our body to produce antibodies that attack cells, which we call now beta cells, in the islets of Langerhans. And they're the cells that produce insulin. So this is most common uh, less than 20 years. Uh, So diabetes less than 20 years is more common in younger people. All right. Uh, than type 2, but type 2 is actually increasing in that, in that region. Uh, but what we find is that there's some sensitization. The body becomes autoimmune, meaning it starts attacking it. These people don't get symptoms until 70 or 80% of those cells are already gone. Uh, and then what happens is they lose the ability for glucose to be taken up in cells because they can't produce insulin. There is a, what would they call a slow-burning variant uh, of type 1, uh, LADA, which is latent autoimmune diabetic of the adult. Uh, so that presents a bit later. Um, but yeah, twin concordant studies uh, is 
between 40 and 60%, meaning that the same gene in one person, another person, there's about a 50% chance that if one twin has it, the other will have it, which means that there's a 50% environmental factor that they'll have that same disease. Uh, That's a bit switched around a little bit in type 2 diabetes when is if your twin has type 2 diabetes you have a 70 to 90 percent chance of having the same disease so there's a bit more uh, genetic component in type 2 diabetes Uh, but this one's a metabolic disease so you have peripheral resistance to insulin uh, and an inadequate secretory response and and again this accounts for about 90 percent of diagnoses these days but if you have parents, if both parents have type 2 diabetes, there's a 40% chance risk uh, that the children will have it. And if your sibling has it, you have about a 15 or 20% chance of you having it. So, And the only last one I won't go into much detail with is gestational diabetes. So that's you get diabetes or high glucose when uh, women are pregnant. This is actually a metabolic function of pregnancy. And most mothers return to normal uh, glucose but they have a 35 to 60% risk of becoming diabetic in the next 10 to 20 years. So again, this is an extensive disease that affects blood vessels, which is pretty much most parts of the most vital parts of the body and something that is increasing in prevalence. And yet, I don't feel like we have enough awareness about it in the general population. It's something that we need to be not only know about it from a screening perspective, but know about it as to treat aggressively when we do have it, because it is a disease that can be ignored for some time, particularly, well, type 2 only. And if it's not managed, the complications are extensive. All right. Coming up in just a moment, we'll be joined by Dr. Devika Thomas. Dr. Devika Thomas has joined us for the last part of this episode on diabetes. And if I may, I would just like to share with you what my GP has to deal with, Devika, because uh, I'm on a course of losing some weight because I'm trying to do, I, I suppose, a, a fairly slack keto approach. I'm not being strict about yes. it, but trying to have more protein, um, some good fats uh, and carbs via vegetables, rather than refined sugars, etc. And the big key for me is I'm trying to do intermittent fasting, which I do about three or four times a week, where, tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe that if I can push past 12, 13 hours after my last meal and go to 16-ish, mm. my body, and I have little short blacks because I believe yes. they don't create um, the body you know, having a glycemic reaction or whatever, um, Is that something, if you were my GP, you'd be rolling your eyes or would you be fairly comfortable with uh, someone presenting saying they're doing this? Um, I will be fairly comfortable with that because uh, different people find different approaches to weight loss work for them. So those who can um, expend a lot of energy going to the gym, then they will take that path. But there is this growing awareness of the body, um, the metabolic process of the body being altered by having a long postprandial period. So when you're saying you're fasting for 12 hours, 16 hours, that's a postprandial period that we're creating. Um, Now, some people are grazers, they have to have small snacks all through the day, and some people are not. So 
in human evolution, we are um, hunter-gatherers, so we eat when we have it, and then there are these periods that we don't. So uh, one of the reasons for the high um, incidence of diabetes in ancient um, um, uh, groups like uh, the our First Nations um, is because they've gone from hunter-gatherer to this grazing very quickly. So they're not able to metabolize all that energy and then therefore they have um, high, higher risk of diabetes. So what we're creating by doing that, what you are doing is you're creating a ketotic state where you're allowing the body to uh, burn its own stored fat. Um, so you will be producing... Um, some ketones from these um, uh, um, free fatty acids that are metabolized in preference to glucose. You're, t- you're using um, low glycemic index food and avoiding high glycemic index food. So you're not eating the refined sugars that give a high um, peaks of high uh, blood glucose. So um, that is an effective way to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the only disadvantage is that a lot of people don't find this sustainable. So they would do it for a period of time and then they will revert back to um, their usual snacking such as covid time where that that has had happened a little bit can i just ask one question on that because it makes it a little bit complicated because if you have a diabetic doing a ketone diet yes no this is not for diabetics this is for um healthy people who want to um, reduce their risks but for cardiovascular disease for diabetes and and other um complications um, and to try and achieve a healthy body weight but not for someone who have chronic illnesses like diabetes and um, other so so it wouldn't be recommended to do a ketone diet if you're diabetic no no i I haven't seen any recommendations um in uh, for diabetic people that involves a ketotic diet yeah because you sit there and go they would test positive for ketones which is bad in diabetes but then you're they're trying to achieve all these periods of fasting and then if they are on um hypoglycemic agents and um, regular medication, that doesn't really um, seem well with that. Well, I'm glad I started that conversation, but (laughs) thank you. I I can now tell my GP what I'm up to with some confidence. (laughs) All right. Thanks, thanks, Davika. Thanks for for being here. I want to ask a few questions starting with type 2 diabetes, the most prevalent one. So the the diagnostic tests, there are a few. Is there any that's preferred? So we've got the fasting glucose, oral glucose tolerance test, and now HbA1c coming in. Are they all as good as each other? Or is one preferred or is one? Yes. So it depends um, on the uh, patient's preferences to some extent. Now, in the old uh, recommendations, they would say at least two um, results of high um, elevated fasting glucose. Um, but then uh, that uh, hasn't been a, a gr- good criteria to pick up uh, or diagnose diabetes. So then it became the two-hour um, in- a glucose tolerance test, and that was our standard test. There is a lot of variability between um, in- intra-individual variability of that test as well. So if you test someone one day and then... Um, test the same person another day, we could get quite different results. Um, It depends on how much carbohydrate they've had in the days leading to the test as well. So um, there are a lot of uh, variables. So therefore, the HbA1c test um, has been the one that's been uh, promoted lately. So uh, what they recommend is, um, Medicare recommendations are that um, anyone who has a high risk of developing diabetes, a family history, um, etc. And these risks are what we uh, have as an online calculator on the OSD risk. And anyone who has 
an OSD risk greater than 12, uh, 12 or more, they should have a HbA1c test. So they, they, that if that is normal, then you can repeat it 12 months later. But it is if it is elevated, that one test is enough to diagnose diabetes. You don't need to repeat it if it was abnormal. So the Medical Journal of Australia, the position statement um, recommended that. These are also the NHMRC recommendations. So let's let's say then, okay, we've, we've diagnosed a patient with diabetes. Uh, we then need to monitor them. Yes. Uh, what's going to be, like some of the recommendations are a little bit different yes. with regards to how often and yes, which we do. Yes, that's right. Um, is there is there a general consensus on monitoring on monitoring? Yes. yes. So the the uh, the reason that there are a lot of different monitoring um, processes going is because there's also expert opinion. So the endocrinologists will choose certain ways of monitoring. The diabetic educators, dietitians, they have different ways of monitoring. Uh, Medicare will look at the financial aspects of it, um, and they've um, their recommendation is to. Uh, perform HbA1c um, every three months. So it makes sense because the, the lifespan of red blood cells is three months and this is a um, what we measure in hemoglobin. So yeah, every three months we could measure that. Uh, but that's not for everyone. So if they've got red cell diseases, it may be affected. So uh, glucose tolerance test is still a good um, way to monitor people. Um, and uh, those who are on sliding scale insulins and um, you know long acting insulins and short acting insulins, they're still um, or, or, or uh, adjusting their doses. They will do their own monitoring with finger glucose. So um, those are um, always charted by the patient and taken to the um, the doctors to have a look at and say, yeah, this is um, good enough or not. But then there is also the um, the uh, glucose pumps, uh, insulin pumps people use, and they would record the blood glucose. Um, at given intervals, and they could all be downloaded and look, looked at as well. So um, there's all different ways of monitoring, but the, some some of it is the patient's preference. This takes us to the the interesting area there of the the sort of the grey zone, the impaired glucose tolerance. Yes. Um, so you can get that in fasting glucose, you can yes. get that in oral glucose yes. tolerance test, yes. and you can get that in HbA1c. Yes. How important is it to follow up? Yes. Those so results. yeah, so um, the the general consensus is that people with impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose will have a five um, percent uh, of these people will become diabetic each year. So uh, we don't know which five percent, which which five percent is going to become diabetic. So they need to give be given appropriate advice on lifestyle. Um, and um, appropriate advice on prevention of diabetes. And then it also means that they need to be retested uh, 12 months later. So this it's difficult to identify which who out of these people are going to become diabetic, but that they will at some stage become diabetic. Well, that takes us then to the, the type 1 diabetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are the appropriate tests for, like if you're wanting to actually say, you know, the antibodies, what are the antibodies yes. for, for type 1? Yeah. So there are four antibodies for type 1 diabetes. So GAD65 um, and anti-insulin antibodies, these are the most commonly measured antibodies. And there's also insulinoma antigen 2, that's IA2, and also um, anti-insulin antibodies. Now GAD65 and um, the um, anti uh, anti-insulin antibodies 
laboratories, they uh, have been to some extent standardized between laboratories and they are comparable between labs. But the other antibodies haven't, those assays haven't been standardized. And so they're not um, promoted um, to uh, as routine diagnostic tests because you might get a positive from one lab and, and negative from another. So, um, however, if someone has all four antibodies, their likelihood of developing type 1 diabetes is very high. So it's in the 90, 90% sort of. So um, depends on how many antibodies you have. Um, when, um, as to the likelihood of developing diabetes. So if they were just, because uh, I'm used to it being termed GAD instead of GAD65, so just GAD and then IA2. So if they were to write, if they were, if doc- doctors were to write uh, pant- or sort of diabetic autoantibodies, would that's they get, what we they would get GAD and IA2, and that's the, the, yep. the two, right, yeah. okay, okay. Now, in people who are at risk, mm-hmm. um would you say screening for anybody? Because if you've got some yes. family history... Yes, yes or that's right. So that's uh, opportunistic screening, and that yeah. is what's recommended by Diabetes Australia. So if you have a child presenting with polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss, and you find that they are they are hypoglycemic and um, very good chance that they have type 1 diabetes, so then it's sometimes you could say yes this is definitely type 1 diabetes just go treat them Um, but if you do happen to um, screen them then you'll find at least one of these antibodies positive then it's a it's a uh, you take the opportunity to screen the siblings Um, and the other thing is that um, if the father has type 1 diabetes the likelihood of children having type 1 diabetes is high but it's not the same with the mother having type 1 diabetes so the, the the thinking is that if the mother has for example, get 65 antibodies, they have type 1 diabetes, these antibodies can cross the placenta and the, the, the baby develops immune tolerance. And so they don't develop these antibodies and their likelihood of developing type 1 is less likely than if the father was positive. So so this, this is where the opportuni- opportunistic screening comes in. Uh, there have been quite a few studies um, around the world on screening children or newborns who have this high risk of developing type 1 diabetes. So one of the studies looked at the HLA um, subtypes. So the the HLA uh, subtypes that are um, more susceptible to develop type 1 diabetes, they pre-screened the babies for that HLA type, and then they went on to um, test their antibodies. So about 75% of them were positive for type 1, um, so sorry, for these antibodies. And then they follow this up. So some of these studies like uh, uh, diabetes in um, childhood and adolescence, they followed up for years and years and years, for decades, to see who's going to develop. So about, so the, about 25% of them developed type 1 diabetes in one, one study. So they are ongoing. Um, some studies... Um, has a mixture of, um, they have a mixture of general population and high-risk groups, but most of them concentrate on these high-risk groups. Um, And twin studies are interesting because the monozygotic twin studies have found that only 50% of them um, have a a twin um, with type 1 diabetes. So it's not 100%. So although their genetic codes are identical, so then it, it brings us to the question of environmental factors. Well, that actually brings us nicely to, to gestational diabetes. Yes. Um, is the oral glucose tolerance test still it standard? Is. Uh, yes. Uh, is it one hour, two hours? So no. the the, um, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists 
as well as the uh, uh, College of Pathologists, uh, Diabetes Australia, all of these groups, and also the ADIPS, which is Australian Diabetes and Pregnancy Study, they all recommend uh, a two-hour glucose tolerance test. So mm-hmm. unlike the non-pregnant adult two-hour glucose tolerance test, we collect a fasting one hour as well as a two hour. So in the normal non, uh, non-di- uh, non-pregnant adult or um, non-pregnant um, oral glucose tolerance test, we only do a fasting and a two hour, but in, mm-hmm. the, in pregnancy, we do a, a one hour as well. So all three measurements have cutoffs uh, for diagnosis of diabetes. For example, um, fasting greater than 5.5, one hour uh, greater than, I think it's 8.5 and two hour greater than 10. So they, they, they're now diagnosed with gestational. Yeah. Um, it is also um, important to see who is at risk. So if you're in an et- uh, at risk, ethnic, high, high prevalence ethnic group, or if you've got family history of diabetes, um, then um, it's it's best to um, check them for diabetes with an oral glucose tolerance test earlier in pregnancy. Repeat again between 24 to 26 weeks. But if you have less lower risk factors than usually around 26 to 28 weeks. Right. It used to be that you would actually give these, these patients 50 grams of glucose. Yeah, and then Is do a ne- one hour. So that's a glucose challenge test. Right. So in, in those days, we did a 50 gram challenge one hour glucose if that's positive they go on to do a, t- a two hour so um to, to make it easier have one step instead of two steps w- that 50 gram um, challenge was removed and okay. now every everyone, everyone with risk would have that two hour test okay okay uh and then how often should screening so most patients revert sort of to normal glucose yes. after after yes. their baby. Yes. Uh, how often should they review these patients? Yes. So with um, gestational diabetes, if they were uh, positive, then um, the recommendation is a glucose tolerance test at six weeks postpartum, a normal adult glucose tolerance test. If they are positive again, then it's a it's a normal glu- a diabetic patient. So then they will be treated as diabetic. If that was negative, then it is recommended that they have an HbA1c test or a glu- oral glucose tolerance test every two years at least. All right. Okay. If they did have gestational diabetes. There's just one last part uh, with regards to uh, how sick patients are, just mm-hmm. with uh, you know if they actually go into diabetic ketoacidosis. Yes. If someone has that, yes. or hyperosmolar, yes. uh, I can never remember the full <laughs> title, um, uh, will they be able to walk in to a normal GP yes. practice and be conversing with you and me and well and still mm-hmm. be in that place, or do they actually be yes. really sick? So with ke- diabetic ketoacidosis, um, type 1 diabetics are uh, um, susceptible and uh, it develops over hours. Um, it, it presents acutely. And with children and adolescents, they're notoriously non-compliant. Mm. And this is why uh, we see these children um, coming to hospital. Now, uh, the, the issue with us is that when we look at blood test results, we see children with high glucose, uh, uh, glucose maybe 20 or 30, and then they have low bicarbon. We know they're acidotic. So the advice is go to hospital before it gets worse because it could get worse in the next few minutes. We don't know what's going to happen. So it could progress quite rapidly so if a if you know that uh, if you know if someone's non-compliant they don't have a lot of supervision from parents then you need to be uh, quite careful with these children Um, in uh, in type 2 diabetes it's hyperglycemic hyper or smaller coma and or hyperglycemic hyper or smaller state 
And um, so this uh, an aspect to this is that if they are, uh, if they have been diabetic but undiagnosed, and so they've um, got really high blood glucose, they've got a glucose of say 20, um, but we don't know they have this. So they, they, but they've got high risk factors and they come in to have a, a glucose tolerance test. We don't know, we, we take a blood sample, but we don't analyze it immediately. So we mm. give them a 75 gram glucose dose on top of this high blood sugar. So they could really, they're at risk of developing hyperglycemic hyperosmolar coma. So both, um, but with the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state that develops over days. So if you're type two diabetic and you're non-compliant, um, you haven't got your tablets that you usually take, um, and then several days of high circulating glucose, then you can become um, get, get into this HHS state. Um, to some extent, the symptoms overlap. So they'll both have confusion, um, dehydration, uh, polyuria, polydipsia, uh, nausea, vomiting. Uh, but the ketoacidosis in type 1, you would have the acetone in the breath, but in HHS you wouldn't. Okay. Uh, but they both would have a confused state and okay. they can lead to coma. Okay. And just finally, um, there are a number of recommendations out there. Yes. Is there any that are more reliable or yes. is, is there yes. one that you refer to so, commonly? Yeah, so a- the um, Diabetes Australia, um, so their website, they have good guidelines. Uh, Endocrine Society of Australia, they've got guidelines as well, and they um, they're uh, con- uh, consistent with the Diabetes Australia guidelines. Uh, from time to time, position statements come out on um, a, a test or a diagnostic um, test or algorithm, and they're they're a good source as well. So um, the NHMRC have they've got some good advice as well, but the good guidelines for um, day-to-day practice is um, Diabetes Australia or Endocrine Society. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, coming in and discussing all that. It's a, it's a complicated area. Thank you very much. And I've got two hours left of my fast still to go today. All right. <laughs> Good luck. So thanks for helping me along thank the way. You. With distraction. Thanks, thank Dr. Dabeka Thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening, and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.